0: Welcome back to the Essentially You podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Marisa Snyder, and I'm here to help you rock your hormones and feel great in your body so that you can reclaim more energy, vitality, and joy, and become the CEO of your health. Let's jump on in. Mm, What I know for sure is that our metabolic health or lack thereof is directly connected to some of the biggest hormone-driven symptoms women and men experience honestly at any age but more predominantly in our late 30s, 40s, 50s and beyond. Now I've personally experienced this myself and wow, did I miss the boat on probably the biggest root cause to many of my disruptive symptoms. It was the daily blood sugar roller coaster I was on filled with blood sugar spikes and crashes. See, back when I was 30 years old and I was struggling with severe chronic fatigue, I was so quick to chalk up my brain fog, cravings, migraines, weight gain, bone-crushing exhaustion to my hormones being out of control. And in a lot of ways, that was true. My stress levels were at an all-time high from being in survival mode for more than 10 plus years and my progesterone levels, they were practically non-existent. But the biggest driver of the brain fog, the constant irritability, the weight gain, even the migraines was the numerous blood sugar spikes I was experiencing every single day. Because believe this, in order to function like a normal human being, to get through my patient load each day at work and then try to go to the gym at 6.30 or 7 o'clock at night, then go home and make dinner, I needed to constantly resupply myself with caffeine and sugar even though I considered it healthy sugar. Because let's get real, even healthy sugar can mess with your blood sugar and metabolism in a big way. So for over a decade, around 11 a.m. and 2.30 p.m. like clockwork, I would hit an energy crash where my brain would simply go offline. It wouldn't work anymore. Now, what I didn't fully realize was that these were times that I would be coming down from a glucose crash, Around 11 a.m., I would be crashing from breakfast, which usually consisted of coffee with a little bit of sugar, because back then I definitely put coffee in my sugar, and some kind of protein bar or breakfast bar, which included sugar in it, right? And then around 2.30 p.m., I would be sugar crashing from lunch, which was typically a sandwich or tacos or some leftovers, but definitely had simple carbs that led to the 2.30 crash. Now it was during these crashes that I would go and get another coffee from Pete's Coffee down the street, and especially that 2:33 p.m. crash. Oh my gosh, that was like the Mack truck exhaustion crash. My fatigue was so great at that time of the day that I would have to include a Kind bar or something that I thought was healthy, but still had at least five grams of sugar to get me over the hump. Now it took every ounce of willpower a couple times a week and like massive discipline to not eat something with sugar in it at 2.30 in the afternoon. But by then, like let's say 6.37 PM when I was finally done with work, I was so hangry that not only did I eat a ton of carbs for dinner, but I also topped it off with a glass of wine to calm down my hangry irritation. So like clockwork, this was my life. I was on a perpetual blood sugar roller coaster with glucose spikes and crashes all day long. I was rarely in fat burning mode because I ate every two to three hours, except at night when I was sleeping. It was no wonder I was so exhausted and so inflamed. Now, honestly, I don't know how much damage I was causing to my body back then when I was on a constant blood sugar roller coaster. It wasn't until I wore a continuous glucose monitor for three months in a row in May that I finally got a sense of what my body was going through over a decade ago, like 12 years ago, right? This is when I finally realized that I must have been experiencing some level of insulin resistance at 30 years old, which explains many of the disruptive symptoms I was having every single day. Now, before I share what I learned when I wore the glucose monitor for the first time, I wanna provide you with a quick refresher on how continuous glucose monitors work, what they can offer you in terms of real-time data. So continuous glucose monitoring, also known as a CGM, automatically tracks blood glucose levels, also called blood sugar, which I've been using those terms interchangeably today throughout the day and night, basically 24-7. A CGM works through a tiny sensor that you insert under your skin, usually on your belly or arm. I've done both, but I typically put mine on my arm. Now, mind you, it doesn't hurt to insert it, and it takes literally one second to apply. It is that fast. Now, once the sensor is in your arm, the sensor measures your glucose levels through the interstitial fluid in your arm, which is the glucose found in the fluid between the cells. The sensor tests glucose every few minutes, A transmitter wirelessly sends information from the monitor to an app on your phone. You can see your glucose level anytime at a glance when you scan the CGM on your phone. And with the scanner, you can also see how glucose changes every few hours or days to see trends regarding what you ate and how that impact your blood sugar. Mind you, other things impact your blood sugar as well. Sleep, stress, those things can also have an impact. Working out. But you really get a sense of the correlation between what you ate and how it shows up on the CGM. Like it shows up in a straight line. It's like a little graph. And you can tell if you have steady glucose or if you're experiencing blood sugar spikes and crashes. So one of the biggest lessons that I learned when I wore the CGM for the first time was how easy it was for me to experience a blood sugar spike. And that it took me longer than 24 hours to recover from even the smallest blood sugar spike. I was blown away. I thought my body would recover so fast, but there I've had blood sugar spikes that have taken me 48 plus hours to recover from, right? Like that is important, that's serious. Like you would think that your body would rebound pretty quickly, not true. And and I get that everybody's body's different, But man, it was such an eye-opening experience for me. So even more so, as I mentioned, the greater the blood sugar spike, the longer it would take my body to get back to a normal fasting blood sugar, which is between 65 milligrams per deciliter to 85 milligrams per deciliter. And I typically, when I look at my normal fasting blood sugar, it's the first scan I do in the morning every single morning. Now, the first time I experienced this uh, was just a couple days into wearing the CGM, my first little blood sugar spike. That day, I shared a super simple dessert in the early evening after dinner with my husband, Alex, and we considered it a pretty healthy dessert. It was basically cut up strawberries and blueberries, and Alex made some homemade coconut whipped cream without any sweetener, I think just a little bit of cinnamon. So we had strawberries, blueberries, some coconut whip, and some cinnamon. That was it. So basically, the sugar was coming from the berries. I remember checking my CGM at 15 minutes, at 30 minutes, and bam, I had a blood sugar spike. Now, blood sugar spiked, I think, like 35 milligrams per deciliter. And what is considered a blood sugar spike is any blood sugar increase of 30 milligrams per deciliter Or more. And let me tell you, it can become a lot more depending on what you eat. So, for example, if my blood glucose was 80 milligrams per deciliter before the strawberries and coconut whip, then it went up to 110 or 115 milligrams per deciliter two to three hours after I ate the dessert. That would be considered a blood sugar spike because it went over 30 milligrams per deciliter, right? 110 minus 80, 30. So, my body what was really, really fascinating is that my body, when it would hit this blood sugar spike, right, I would see a major decrease. Like I would start to see the beginning of a sugar crash. And that's because my pancreas, like all of our pancreases, if if it's working properly, right, I know that for people with type 1 diabetes, this isn't the case, but our pancreas releases insulin to signal the cells to uptake the glucose in the blood. And depending on how severe the spike was, more insulin will be released to get blood sugar back to a normal range. And due to the rapid release of insulin, it's very possible to experience a blood sugar crash due to the overcorrection of insulin signaling the cells to deal with the excess glucose in the blood. Now, when I saw how long it took me to fully recover from the seemingly healthy dessert in the early evening after dinner, I had the biggest aha moment. Like, oh my goodness, I figured it out. I realized that there were years when I just operated on a constant blood sugar roller coaster, and I was dealing with blood sugar spikes and crashes all day long, which, best believe, were greater than the 30 milligrams per deciliter any given day of the week. And honestly, back then, I had no idea. I had I had no idea. I also didn't know that these spikes and crashes were driving inflammation and throwing off my hormones. All of the time. Combine this with stress, the stress that I was dealing with, it's no wonder I felt like crap all the time and eventually crashed and burned at 30 years old. And unequivocally, the blood sugar roller coaster drove many of my symptoms, especially the ones that were the most disruptive, like waking up groggy, feeling depleted, the killer cravings, the migraines, the irregular menstrual cycles, and the weight gain and irritability. All of that was because of this crazy blood sugar roller coaster I was on and had no idea. I can't tell you how beyond grateful I am that I have learned this information over the past five years and even more clearly, like just really knowing it over the last two years so that I can make some big pivots right now as I step into perimenopause and beyond, because this is when it matters most, right? This is when our metabolism is so, so critical. As we get into our 40s and older, it's everything. And so the more that we can pivot, especially as our sex hormones drop, as women, we've gotta really have our metabolic flexibility dialed in. So I'm gonna be sharing with you today exactly how you can do that. Now, I'm even more grateful that I can share this game-changing information with you today because you probably know more than a few people experiencing blood sugar spikes and crashes on a consistent daily basis, right? I can name a couple people in my life right now. Knowing how my metabolic hormones work and the impact they have on my energy, my brain function, and my overall mood has made the biggest difference as a new mom to a very, very busy toddler. Because let me tell you, I need all the energy reserves I can get my hands on right now, taking care of this baby, running my business and doing all the other things that I'm doing. So why should we be concerned with blood sugar spikes and what are they exactly? Well, let me tell you that blood sugar spikes are literally like handling blood sugar spikes, ensuring that we don't have blood sugar spikes is literally the name of the game when it comes to keeping your metabolism humming and working for you, not against you. As I shared a moment ago, a blood sugar spike will show up on a CGM as an event in which blood sugar raises 30 milligrams per deciliter or more as a response to eating a certain food or meal. The number one goal is to keep blood sugar fairly level and steady, meaning no large spikes because large spikes indicate higher blood glucose and in response, the body needs a more substantial insulin release to bring that glucose level back down. When this occurs repeatedly, I mean like every single day, (laughs) even weekly, right? It can generate the pathological process of insulin resistance, whereby cells become numb to insulin. Insulin resistance happens over time, and if not corrected, could eventually lead to type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and dementia. And at the very least, you'll see early signs of like fatigue, hormonal imbalance, weight resistance, and obesity. Now as a society, our metabolic goal should be to reduce glucose spikes as much as humanly possible, lower that insulin production, thus decreasing the possibility for insulin resistance. In the short term, when we keep glucose and insulin more stable, we can improve cellular function, balance those hormones, and improve our energy levels. So it's no surprise that the first hormone that matters when it comes to metabolic health is insulin, right? The first of the three that I'm going to be talking about today. Blood sugar balance and sensitive insulin levels contribute to whether you wake up feeling energized in the morning and throughout the day. That's the deal, right? If you've got stable insulin levels and blood sugar levels, you are going to feel like a rock star. Now, I want to break down how insulin works in regards to our metabolism and show you how we end up with insulin resistance. Like, how does this process even happen? Well, let's start with when we eat carbs, whether it's a bowl of whole grain pasta or a bag of potato chips, as soon as they touch your tongue, they immediately begin to break down into glucose, aka sugar, right? I've been using these terms interchangeably tonight. This breakdown into glucose continues as carbs move through the stomach and into the intestine. From there, glucose leaves the digestive tract and enters the bloodstream. Now, the more carbohydrates you eat, the higher blood glucose raises immediately after that meal. Depending on the carb, blood sugar rises even faster. For example, a milkshake or a Starbucks Frappuccino will raise blood sugar the fastest. I mean, like mega fast, because it's liquid, simple sugars. Not only will you see a massive blood sugar spike, but it'll possibly go above 100 milligrams per deciliter in as short as 15 minutes. Now, as as glucose enters the bloodstream, the body sends a SOS signal to the pancreas to create insulin, a hormone that takes glucose out of the blood and feeds it to the body's cells like our skeletal muscle cells. Insulin is needed to shuttle glucose from your blood into your muscle and fat cells, where it can be used for energy or stored for later use. Insulin also signals the liver to take up excess glucose and store it as glycogen for later use. More on this in a moment. This is your body striving to closely regulate your blood glucose levels every single time you eat. Without insulin, your blood glucose levels would stay elevated for a much longer period, and that would be very, very bad. This is why people with type 1 diabetes must take insulin every single day via an injections or pump to ensure that they are pulling glucose from your blood. For example, chronically elevated blood glucose levels cause inflammation that can damage your blood vessels, your kidneys, your eyes, and your nerves. This is why diabetes can lead to many health complications. Your body wants to maintain a healthy level of blood glucose to keep you healthy and all systems functioning optimally. However, due to a number of factors, the biggest factor is a steady increase in carbohydrate consumption over the course of many years. The cells can't burn through the stored glucose and they are full of excess sugar. Because of this, cells downregulate the receptor site that insulin can bind to, not allowing more glucose in as a form of protecting themselves. As a result, the pancreas releases even more insulin so that that insulin pushes the glucose into the cells whether they want it or not. With insulin resistance, a greater amount of insulin is needed to get the same amount of glucose into your cells. Insulin is no longer able to push glucose efficiently inside of a cell, and the cell becomes numb to the effects of insulin. Imagine insulin is the train pusher at the train stop, shoving more people, AKA glucose, into an already full train filled with people. As the condition worsens over time, insulin levels can remain elevated even when you haven't eaten anything. Like they are elevated all the time. This is called hyperinsulinemia and therein lies the bigger problem. When we are in a state of hyperinsulinemia where insulin remains high, insulin becomes a fat storage hormone pushing more glucose in the liver, forcing the liver to turn glucose into triglycerides to make more room for incoming glucose. Over time, this leads to non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and stubborn weight gain around the belly and visceral organs. Commonly, people assume if blood sugar levels are too high, the problem must be the body needs more insulin. But it's not that there's a lack of insulin production. Rather, the excess insulin the body is making is not working properly. Since insulin is considered a major hormone player, it affects many other hormone systems, including our reproductive hormones. When we hit perimenopause, our bodies are already trying to manage the effects of imbalanced sex hormones, estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone, and that causes a spectrum of perimenopausal symptoms. Now, unless your insulin metabolism and blood sugar levels are balanced and functioning, you will have a very, very hard time reducing the hot flashes, losing the stubborn weight, or relieving other perimenopause and menopause symptoms like disrupted sleep and mood swings. Insulin and other major hormones, including cortisol, have everything to do with how you feel every single day and how well your body works. Restoring balance to insulin and cortisol should always be at the top of the list. If insulin gets blocked, there are a number of chronic conditions that will arise. One top contributing directly to obesity, diabetes, PCOS. Insulin resistance is closely linked to other serious health problems like high blood pressure, high cholesterol, breast cancer, endometrial cancer, and has been implicated in Alzheimer's. Many people call Alzheimer's disease type 3 diabetes based on the inflammation insulin resistance can cause the brain. Insulin resistance also hides behind two of the most common symptoms women experience during menopause and even perimenopause, right? And for some, even earlier than that, and that is fatigue and weight gain. Women notice these symptoms as they approach menopause mostly because their bodies can no longer deal with blood sugar spikes and crashes. These continuous blood sugar spikes and crashes lead to weight gain, especially when it comes to belly fat. Other symptoms include brain fog, difficulty concentrating, like word recall, and sugar cravings, like killer sugar cravings. All of these are early symptoms of insulin resistance that we often don't make the connection. Like I didn't make the connection at 30 years old. There's no way it could have been insulin resistance, right? There was no way that was the issue. It had to be something else. We typically think it's other hormones at play. I definitely thought so. For women in particular, The way insulin resistance disrupts fat metabolism is significant. When cells won't soak up the extra glucose, the liver has to deal with it by converting it into fat. Since fat cells are loaded with glucose receptors, this is a never-ending cycle. If you are insulin resistant and gaining weight, the cells are actually starved for glucose. Even with all the excess glucose that's hanging around, the cells still can't get enough. This situation, sometimes called Syndrome X, causes you to feel exhausted all the time, so you turn to the same trouble-causing carbohydrate-heavy foods for fast energy. This was literally me every single day. But since your extra fat cells are like little estrogen factories, they promote weight gain by feeding the estrogen dominance that causes so many of the symptoms during early stages of perimenopause, such as heavy periods, migraines, fibroids, brain fog, and mood swings insulin resistance symptoms usually hit well before menopause, but when syndrome X is in full swing, women's health can deteriorate rapidly during menopause as estrogen levels fall. Any existing digestive issues turn more serious as the body's natural defenses against inflammation, including estrogen, are depleted. So given all of this, I know it sounds like bad news, but there's a lot that we can do. How do we begin to stay on top of our insulin levels and make sure that we have stable blood sugar levels, right? You are at the highest risk for developing insulin resistance if you have a family history of type two diabetes or if you've ever had gestational diabetes, hypertension, or been overweight. Women who tend to gain weight mostly around their bellies show less tolerance for insulin. To assess your risk, if you want to know a simple way to do this, measure yourself around the smallest part of your waist, don't hold in your stomach, and the biggest part of your hips. Divide your waist measurement by your hip measurement. A ratio bigger than 0.8 for women or 1.0 for men indicate that your abdomen is obese and you are at risk for developing insulin resistance. Now, if you have an abnormal amount of fat or cholesterol in your blood, especially if you have low LDL levels and high triglycerides, you may be insulin resistant. Another sign to look for is skin changes. Be on the lookout for velvety, wart-like darkened skin patches on the neck or armpits. This skin change indicates insulin resistance over 90% of women who experience it. If you suspect insulin resistance or you wanna stay on top of it, which I highly recommend you do, I do recommend doing a full blood sugar panel. I recommend doing a fasting blood glucose, a hemoglobin A1C, and a fasting insulin. Now I will say, getting a fasting insulin won't be easy, but it's always worth asking. Now remember, an ideal fasting glucose is around 80, I would say 75 to 85 milligrams per deciliter. This is a great ideal. The closer you get to 100 milligrams per deciliter with a fasting blood glucose test, you're moving into dangerous territory. Now, when it comes to hemoglobin A1c, I think personally of all the tests that you can have run, this is going to be the best indicator of what's going on. Ideally, it's under 5.4, but a hemoglobin A1c of 5.7 or greater indicates prediabetes. And if it's at 6.2 or greater, that indicates type 2 diabetes. So just a heads up. And if you were to ever do a glucose tolerance test, ideal is 130 milligrams per deciliter and under. Now, I will be sharing what you can do to stabilize blood sugar levels and insulin after I share the other two hormones that matter most when it comes to your metabolic health. Now, I promise to keep these two shorter now that you have a greater understanding of the role of blood sugar and insulin, which was really the main part I wanted to dial in today during this episode. Now, the second hormone that matters is leptin. Leptin is produced by your fat cells. It's considered a satiety hormone that reduces appetite and makes you feel full once you've had enough to eat. As a signaling hormone, its role is to communicate with the hypothalamus, the portion of your brain that regulates appetite and food intake. Leptin tells the brain that there's enough fat in storage and no more is needed, which helps prevent overeating. Now, people who are insulin resistant and or obese usually have very high levels of leptin in their blood. In fact, one study found that leptin levels in obese people were four times higher than in people of normal weight. Unfortunately, in obesity and with insulin resistance, the leptin system doesn't work as it should, referring to leptin resistance. We know that hyperinsulinemia can drive leptin resistance based on what goes on with the fatty liver and your liver trying to move that glycogen into adipose cells. Now, stabilizing blood sugar glucose levels and flattening the glucose curve is the best way to address leptin resistance and insulin resistance. And that's the key here. When it comes to leptin resistance, it's all about that stable blood sugar level. Like that's what's gonna get your leptin back under control. The third most important metabolic hormone, in my opinion, is cortisol. Cortisol has many roles in the body, as you know, if you've listened to this show, from helping you to wake up to regulating insulin. But its biggest role is mitigating stress, especially chronic stress. So a fact that a lot of people don't know, but chronic stress will drive insulin resistance, whether you've had anything to eat or not. When we are in a state of perceived stress, which the average adult can be many, many, many times a day, definitely a lot during the week. We co-elevate blood sugar levels and insulin levels as a survival mechanism. This hormone cascade is the equivalent of eating a chocolate bar without actually eating it. It literally shows up as a blood sugar spike for many people, including myself. When I have really severe stress or anxiousness, I have seen a spike on my continuous glucose monitor within like when I haven't had food for hours. So I want you to know that the amount of blood sugar spikes you have, they may not always be driven by sugar. They may be driven by stress. They may be driven by elevated cortisol levels. And that's because you've triggered your stress response system. So one of the biggest detriments to optimal functioning of our bodies is sympathetic dominance caused by chronic perceived stress and overwhelm. Sympathetic dominance impedes our ability to function and think straight and it messes with our metabolism, most particularly messes with our blood sugar levels. It can force a blood sugar spike and crash. Stress also, as you know, goodness I know, it makes us exhausted and it creates unhealthy blood sugar levels, cravings, and brain fog. Now, if you want the best strategies for reducing stress and lowering cortisol levels, I actually have an episode specifically devoted to the connection of stress to insulin resistance, diabetes, and stubborn weight gain. It was episode 293, How Stress Contributes to Insulin Resistance, Diabetes, and Stubborn Weight Gain. So if you want the full kit and caboodle, the full picture of how that all works, go and listen to episode 293. It'll be in the show notes. So now that I shared the three most important hormones that influence your metabolism, I want to share the best hacks and strategies for ensuring a flat, steady glucose level all the time. And it's basically how to avoid blood sugar spikes and crashes that ultimately can lead to inflammation, right? So we want to nip that in the bud right now because you may be thinking to yourself, what if I'm experiencing blood sugar spikes and crashes and don't even know it? If that's the case, if you're wondering, hmm, is this happening to me? This is how you can address it. First thing I recommend, if you can, is wearing a CGM for at least a month if you can afford one. They are currently a bit pricey, but at least you can finally get one without a prescription, right? Like you can you can get one from a couple of the different companies out there right now. Now, I'm going to have a link for my Levels Health CGM in the show notes. Although they still have a wait list of over 500,000 people, I have a special cut the line access code, so I will have it in the show notes as well. Now, I want you to know that you technically do not need a CGM to stabilize your blood sugar levels. No, you don't. It is nice to have and it's an, you have all these aha moments and like it's real. Like you can see, oh my gosh, I just ate that thing. I had no idea that was going to have an impact on me. Like the numbers don't lie. So it's always, it can be jarring, a little, little surprising at first, but man, it's such important information to know about yourself if you can make it work. Again, the recommendation I'm about to share with you to help flatten your glucose curve were literally what I used to flatten my glucose curve to the point that my blood sugar levels were steadily between 65 milligrams per deciliter and 95 milligrams per deciliter, even after meals. I never even got over 100 milligrams per deciliter after eating. My glucose levels stayed consistently low with few or no spikes, even after years of having crazy blood sugar spikes. So what I really want you to walk away from is that your body can absolutely reverse insulin resistance with the recommendations below. I have also shared these recommendations before because they are so powerful. So if you're hearing them again for the second time, I hope they really sink in. Okay, so number one. Quality of sleep matters when it comes to restoring your metabolic function and stabilizing those blood sugar levels. It is critical that we reset your circadian rhythm by incorporating evening rituals and morning rituals. For the evening, I always say this, eat three hours or more before bed, right? You want to make sure that you have a three plus hour gap between when you ate last and when you go to bed. That gives your body enough time to digest your meal and make sure that you go into restore mode while you sleep. Your brain needs that three hour break so that it can go and clean house to fully remove the amyloid plaques, the excess toxins, all the gunk that your brain has been metabolizing all day long. So what I recommend is 30 minutes before bed, take 300 milligrams of magnesium glycinate, and I love, love, love to really shut the brain down. I love my Zen Sleep supplement, it is a game changer. My Magnesium Restore supplement is a perfect, perfect complement to support relaxation reduce anxiety, and just help support your mood before bed. You can even pair it with GABA or taurine to kind of up the ante, especially if you have low progesterone levels. Magnesium is a star supplement for supporting insulin sensitivity, especially at night when we are more insulin resistant. No electronics and blue light one hour to 30 minutes before bed. Make sure your bedroom and bed are dark and cool enough for you. Aim for at least eight hours of sleep per night, right? Make sure those hours are full of high quality. We're talking about deep restorative sleep, right? As much as you can get. And if you are looking for a super like amazing sleep routine, I share an epic sleep routine in my latest book, The EO Menopause Solution. Now in the morning to help turn on the cortisol awakening response, to make sure that your body is fully awake and generating energy for you, Go outside in nature and get some fresh air in the first 30 minutes to an hour after you wake up. This will boost your mitochondrial function, lower your stress, help you feel more energized, and yes, help to continue to stabilize that blood sugar level. Now, if you really want to boost your metabolism, try exercising 15 to 30 minutes or more outside even just walking right, or doing yoga and Pilates is a win. I recommend doing this in the morning while you still are fasting from the night before to really help bolster that metabolic flexibility. Now, because you're still fasting, you may be able to tap into those glycogen stores or even better yet, into your fat storage. This will help to stabilize your blood sugar levels and boost your insulin sensitivity. Plus, when you work out, when cortisol is at its peak in the morning, you feel great. And you avoid any risk of feeling drained or burned out, which is more common later in the afternoon or evening. Number two, intermittent fasting is an effective strategy for reducing inflammation, lowering blood sugar levels, boosting energy and focus, and it can get you in fat burning mode and increase your mitochondrial function. So I recommend aiming for 13 to 16-hour window three to five times a week. Do whatever your body says. A 16-hour window is ideal. This leaves you with eight hours of an eating window. And if you really can push it, try up to 20 to 24-hour window. These extended windows can lead to burning more fat and has been shown to reverse prediabetes and definitely insulin resistance. Now, if you want to repair your cells through cellular autophagy, Try a 17 to 18 hour fast a couple times a week. Cellular autophagy is the act of your cells doing a major spring cleaning and getting rid of any waste it doesn't need. When we give ourselves time to clean shop, it significantly extends our longevity and improves our energy levels. Number three, break your fast with powerful nutrition, with protein and fiber as the focus. So start your day with a 16 ounce or more of a sexy water infusion. I have a belly slim down water to help your liver, gut, and belly de-bloat and to function better. So if you were the night before, take a two liter glass jar, add purified water, a squeeze of lemon. I prefer a Meyer lemon if you've got it. Add 10 to 15 mint leaves and a whole sliced cucumber and a dash of cayenne pepper or maybe a little bit of ginger. If you're feeling spicy and you want to boost your metabolism a little extra more, this is going to just help just cleanse your body, help you feeling really regenerated in the morning. Add cinnamon to your coffee instead of sugar. Cinnamon is amazing for stabilizing blood glucose levels and it's heart protective. It also has often has chromium in it, which can really help stabilize blood sugar levels. This was a swap that I did when I was 30 years old and I never looked back. And make sure you have protein at every single meal, protein and fiber, especially breakfast, no matter what is in your first meal. Aim for 25 to 30 grams of protein at every single meal minimum to support your muscles and aid in stabilizing glucose and insulin levels. Now, protein will give your metabolism a boost thanks to a process called thermogenesis, where your body uses 10% of its calorie intake for digestion. Because it takes longer to burn protein than carbs and fat, your body uses more energy absorbing the nutrients in a high-protein meal. Now, protein also blunts a blood sugar rise when consumed before and during a meal. Even though protein contains no glucose, it triggers a first phase insulin response that occurs so fast that it keeps your blood sugar from raising at a higher level later and reduces the total amount of insulin you need to handle a meal. Also consider increasing fiber at every single meal and eating it first. Cellular fiber in particular can help control blood sugar spikes. It dissolves in water to form a gel-like substance that helps to slow the absorption of carbs in the gut. This results in a steady rise and fall in blood sugar rather than a spike. Fiber can also have you feel full, reducing your appetite and food intake. I personally add fiber to my green smoothies every single morning and I eat a salad before every single meal. A small salad with fibrous veggies before a big meal will help to soak up the starch and sugar from the meal and slow down the blood sugar increase. Lastly, consider eating lightly cooked vegetables during a meal to slow down the digestion of a meal and to help soak up any sugar from carbohydrates. And if you really want to slow down a blood sugar spike, the order in which you eat your food matters. So how it goes is eat your fibrous veggies first, then protein and fats, and then last carbs. This will significantly slow down the absorption of sugar and it will ensure you don't have a glucose spike. Like it'll definitely taper that bump after you've consumed that meal. Number four, probably one of my favorite favorites, is walk 20 to 40 minutes after meals, especially dinner when you are most insulin resistant. Research has shown that walking after eating improves blood sugar management significantly. Based on current data, the ideal time to walk is immediately following a meal. At this time, your body is still working to digest the food you've eaten, allowing you to obtain the benefits like improved digestion and blood sugar management. While walking after all of your meals may lead to the most optimal benefits, simply taking a walk after dinner can make the massive, massive difference. I cannot tell you, I I just had a CGM on for the last month. And we walked after almost every single dinner. And sometimes, again, we had some healthy desserts. I'm not going to lie. You know, a little dark chocolate here, a little strawberries and blueberries. I'm a big berry fan. And we would then go take a walk after our dessert because we usually eat dessert pretty early after we have dinner. And we f- literally follow that order of foods. Like we'll eat our veggies first, a big salad. We'll have our protein and fats. Often we don't have carbs, but sometimes we do. Or we may have berries for dessert, and then we'll go take a 30-minute walk, and we will see our blood sugar start to climb, and then that walk, it'll just start to drop back down. Every single time, my husband and I were both wearing a CGM for a month, and it was so cool to watch them start to rise and then go back down. Walking is so powerful. We have seen it in real time over and over and over again, where it blunts any possible blood sugar spike, at least for us. Number five, cut out processed food as much as possible, especially processed carbs. I recommend following the five ingredient or less rule when it comes to reading the ingredient label, and ideally a one to three ingredient label is even better. Number six, focus on two or three meal magic, a term coined by my dear friend, Trisha Nelson. The focus is to get all the nutrients you need from two or three meals a day, and that means no snacks. This gives your digestive system, your metabolism, and your cells an opportunity to turn that meal into fuel and to help stabilize those blood sugar levels. If we eat frequent meals throughout the day, we never, ever give our body an opportunity to go into fat-burning mode, and we are constantly in sugar-burning mode. And let me tell you, you get on that sugar roller coaster. That's what ultimately ends up happening. Number seven, swap your 45 to 60-minute cardio routine for lifting weights for 20 to 30 minutes three to four times a week and make those weights as heavy as you can and rep it out until your muscles are fatigued this will help increase muscle mass and stabilize insulin levels and blood sugar levels number eight breathe Deep breathing throughout the day increases your vagal tone, which activates the parasympathetic nervous system, which is known as the rest and digest system. Given how often we feel stressed and we are firing off that sympathetic nervous system, aka the stress response system, it's critical to follow focus on increasing your vagal tone so that your body can relax faster after encountering a stressor. I recommend setting three to four reminders on your phone each day to breathe for 30 to 60 seconds. Number nine, this is a big one. <laughs> it's the game changer. Reduce your sugar intake. Just cut out the sugar. I know, easier said than done. Research suggests that most Americans eat anywhere from 55 to 92 grams of added sugar every single day, which is the equivalent of 13 to 22 teaspoons of table sugar each day, representing about 12 to 16% of your daily caloric intake. The World Health Organization recommends less than 5% of calories from added sugar for optimal health. Mm that is a big difference, right? 16% versus 5%. Most added sugars in American diets come from sugary drinks, sodas, sports drinks, energy drinks, sweetened teas, and other things. Swap out those sugary drinks for sparkling water with lime, teas, coffee, matcha, and water. One of the things I've been doing is I've been making a decaffeinated hibiscus tea. Super yummy. And I have a big vat of it in my fridge, and then I combine it with sparkling water. We buy cases of Pellegrinos from Costco, and then I squeeze lime in. So it's the hibiscus tea, lime, and sparkling water. I actually have it right here in my Yeti, right next to me right now. I am recording this, by the way, at like 8 o'clock at night. (laughs) So if my voice sounds a little harsh, it's because we were doing big-time dance parties earlier today, and my voice ran out. Grain and dairy-based desserts such as cakes, pies, donuts, ice creams account for more than 18% of intake of sugar. So swap out desserts for warm tea with almond milk, dark chocolate, berries and coconut whip, (laughs) peaches and other fresh fruits with cinnamon. These are great options and if you take a walk after that, you probably won't see a spike at all. Snacks are another area where hidden sugars are found. So ideally avoiding snacking to give your body a break from digesting and metabolizing. If you do need a snack, consume snacks that are focused on protein and fats or on fiber like cucumbers and bell peppers and celery sticks, right? With a little bit of hummus, whatever works for you. That way you have that fiber, the healthy fat, a little bit of protein. That'll really ensure that you don't have a blood sugar spike. Number 10. Include magnesium, chromium and berberine into your daily supplement routine. Studies show that both chromium and magnesium can be effective in controlling blood sugar spikes. Berberine has been traditionally used in Chinese medicine for thousands of years. Some of its uses include cholesterol reduction, weight loss, and blood sugar control. Studies have shown that it can reduce blood sugar spikes by 25% after you eat it. Berberine does this by reducing the amount of sugar produced by the liver and increasing insulin sensitivity. It's even been found to be as effective as some drugs like metformin used for type 2 diabetes. In fact, I am, as I mentioned, a couple times, I am releasing my glucose support blend. It's an herbal blend to help stabilize blood sugar levels and insulin. It's gonna contain berberine, cinnamon, fenugreek, and American ginseng. And it's gonna be out in literally less than a month. It's gonna be towards the end of June. I created the supplement for two purposes. One, to promote insulin sensitivity and two, to help you stabilize blood sugar levels and to help create healthy glucose metabolism. That's the name of the game for this supplement. That's the job it's designed to do. And if there are supplements you need to get your hands on, like the Magnesium Restore, I will have a link to the Essentially Whole store if you need to go stock up if you're running low because at the end of the day when it comes to blood sugar management metabolic management energy management right we've got to be consistent with the supplements that we take every single day i do not miss My days, at least like I have like 10 that I take. They're non-negotiable. I take them every single day. They make the biggest difference. But a bunch of them are helping to maintain healthy metabolic function. So just something to consider. Supplements are a major player in this particular discussion because they can really move the needle for you if other things aren't working. And then your bonus is loving your liver. As I talked about earlier, your liver is a major player here. So it is critical to metabolic function and plays a huge role in fat storage. So daily liver support includes being mindful of sugary foods, alcohol, and medications, doing the morning metabolic boosting routine, and making sure that you are well supplemented. One of the best-selling supplements I have is my liver support supplement that has many of the vitamins like vitamin C, selenium, cofactors like lupaic acid, and anicylcysteine, and hepatic herbs like turmeric to support and heal your liver. And to further love your liver today, I am gifting my top 10 liver loving superfoods guide with recipes. Oh, I love the recipes like the liver tonic are so delicious. You can download it by heading to the show notes and clicking the link and you'll get the full guide, the superfoods, the recipes, everything to love your liver today. Whew! We did it. That was a doozy. It was so much information, but I just really wanted you to feel fully supported when it comes to supporting your metabolic health because so much of it is tied to how we feel every single day. Thank you so much for listening into the Essentially You podcast. This show is all about providing tools to rock your hormones and feel amazing in your body. If there's someone in your life that needs to hear this today, take a moment screenshot it send it on over to them or share it on social and if you share it on social hashtag hormone ceo until the next episode have an amazing day